Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome Johan Frins to the podcast. Johan is the director of BankTrack, an international tracking, campaigning and NGO support organization focused on banks and the activities they finance. Its mission is to stop banks from financing harmful business activities. Johan helped co-found the BankTrack network in 2003. And prior to this, he worked as a campaigner and coordinator of various international NGO networks with a focus on the financial sector. So thank you very much, Johan, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, uh, I'm very much looking forward to, to we, we've had a little brief talk and it's fascinating the, the work you're doing. Um, but maybe just before we, we go into the details, can you just by way of introduction, just tell us a little bit about what you do and, and your background? Sure. Uh, well, I'm Johan. I'm the director of BankTrack. It's uh, an NGO that we, we I've helped found in 2003, uh, 17 years ago. Uh, and by that time, it was a network of organizations that had in common that they were all looking at the banking sector, commercial banks, and they felt that they needed to uh, strengthen their cooperation. So I was hired uh, in 2003, basically as a interim person to help uh, set up this network and this cooperation. And I'm still there. It's uh, 17 years onwards, but I still enjoy it a lot. And I'm the director. Nowadays, we're no longer a network. We are a standalone organization based in Nijmegen, the Netherlands. Um, our former network partners have become work partners. And I lead a team of uh, 11 people, 12 by now since yesterday. Um, and our focus uh, every day is uh, on the uh, sustainability commitments of private sector banks, commercial banks, and within that, we have a very strong focus on the, the climate impact of investments by commercial banks. Right. So you're you're not in a, an investment group identifying investment opportunities then? You're, not at all. Your, no. your focus is what exactly? So you look at banks to see, uh, and particular projects to see what? Yeah, we are a civil society organization, a campaign organization. Uh, and our goal is to, to, to push banks to adopt policies that uh, will ensure that their investments are sustainable in a very broad sense of the word, uh, both on, on uh, environmental, social, human rights impact. Um, so we're not an investor group or anything, uh, but we our work is, 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 is tracked by investors and analysts uh, to give a clue on uh, what civil society thinks on the performance of a particular bank. Great, great. Now, before we go into details uh, about some of your campaigns and some of the, you know, how you operate, um, what, what's on your mind at the moment, Johan, generally? I mean, we're, we're still in this uh, COVID crisis, um, myriad environmental issues, uh, climate change and so forth. Is there any particular subset of, 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 of uh, those issues that, that particularly concern you? Well, as everybody else, we are in the middle of the crisis and that affects the organization a lot. Uh, um, we see it, of course, as a, uh, a big obstacle. Uh, the fact that it hit last year was a, uh, um, you know, it has delayed a lot of very urgent matters to be dealt with. I mean, the Glasgow Climate Summit was delayed. Um, so on the one hand, we see all this as a huge obstacle. On the other hand, and that's what we agree with many people, uh, this is also maybe the best opportunity to deal with matters. Um, it, it is clear now that uh, if uh, if governments wish to, then they can take very uh, drastic measures very quickly. That we can mobilize society to to take uh, you know to take a very different way forward, and that is the very same thing that needs to happen with the climate crisis. So we hope to capitalize on the situation, on the sense of urgency, on the maybe bit enhanced understanding of people that, you know, it's all linked, that uh, pandemics don't come out of nothing. Uh, biodiversity loss plays a big role. Uh, climate change will exacerbate 
impacts of uh, you know future pandemics etc so the only way forward is to deal with all these things uh, and to deal with it in a comprehensive manner and of course within that which is a very large massive uh, challenge uh, our role is to look at banks and see how they can uh, help contribute to that better world that we all seek yeah very interesting i mean it's a cliche to say that money makes the world go around and money and finance you know fuels industry handmaiden i guess of 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 industry i mean it's vast clearly that the financial services industry uh industries and have become so in a highly you know financialized uh global economy certainly in the last decades where do you focus in that vast uh, sea of, of finance yeah we we decided already in 2003 that uh, our focus is on uh, the operations of commercial banks the well-known brand names that everybody knows um, but we, you know, we work in a in a an ecosystem of organizations that look at finance in general. So we work with partners that look on the insurance industry, on pension funds, on multilateral development banks, on export credit agencies. We're all in touch. We're all, you know, actually it's very much the same group of people uh, globally that is pushing all this work forward. But within that, we have a very clear focus on commercial banks and commercial banks alone. And that is still, you know, when I say alone, that sounds like we have limited ourselves, but, you know, there is over 15,000 banks in the world, commercial banks. So there's still plenty of work to uh, try to track even, uh, you know, the, the segment of the, let's say the largest hundred banks. Yeah. But that's our focus. Yeah. yeah. Now you talked about civil society and, and, and the ways in which I guess, um, uh, we've seen tremendous momentum in various different, uh, be it Extinction Rebellion or uh, Greta Thunberg and, and, and Sunrise and, 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 and things like that. Um, it, it's often seemed to me, and, and of course, large corporations have been increasingly under the spotlight of you know organizations like Greenpeace and so forth for some time. It's often seemed that the banks, the banking sector has been more obscure, got less attention, notwithstanding its crucial role. Can you give a kind of how how much do people care now? I mean, what would you say is the state of awareness or or engagement on civil society? Maybe up to let's say uh, the beginning of the pandemic, because as you said, that's kind of overshadowed everything. Yeah, I mean, most people think that the finance sector is a difficult world, you know, and it's not for the average campaigner to understand or let alone to influence it. And we spend a lot of time uh, trying to convince people that that's not the case. I mean, it's not rocket science. Uh, you can engage with banks on uh, what they finance. And if you have a very clear idea of what you think the world should look like and what should not be financed by banks, then that's the basis of a conversation that you can have with banks or uh, you know the start of a campaign if you uh, think that's necessary i think we were on a good track uh, prior to the pandemic um, we will never know the world will never know where we would be without the pandemic but everything uh, right before the pandemic hit was uh, showing that there was a there was a big awakening no we all saw the extinction rebellion uh, the fridays for future the climate actions all over the place there was a real momentum and i think if the pandemic hadn't hit and we had had the uh, the global uh, sorry the Glasgow Climate Summit. Uh, things would have been very different, um, but it didn't work that way. So we are in the situation where we are now. Uh, these movements still exist, but they have been uh, limited to uh, online campaigning in the same way as we are. That is an obstacle. That certainly doesn't help. But the uh, awareness, as I said, of you know the interconnectedness of the various crises, including the pandemic. And also uh, the eagerness of campaigners to uh, to take on banks is growing. Um, you mentioned Extinction, Extinction Rebellion. Uh, there is also now Money Rebellion. There is there's all kinds of offshoots of, of uh, climate campaigners focusing on banks. And uh, we are well connected, I think, to uh, to established NGOs, but also to campaign groups. And we are, we are you know, assisting groups that, for example, uh, extinction groups that are trying to launch campaigns to ask bank customers to withdraw their money from banks and deposit it elsewhere to with sustainable banks we try to help uh, you know set up this kind of initiatives yes 
Yes, of course, uh, bank accounts are, are, are notoriously uh, static. Uh, few people change. I think it's one of those things that stays with uh, people for, for their lives. Certainly, it's, it's it, it, over time, it's been the case. I mean, presumably that's changing. I mean, the bigger question, I guess, is how influenceable, as it were, is that a word, um, are, are banks? And can you talk about the channels of influence? How, do, how does something like that play out? Um, then we have to distinguish between what generally influences banks, which is a lot of different things, and what civil society can do to influence yeah, banks. Exactly, I, exactly. Which way you want to go, because it's, it is exactly, a different... Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, civil society is, I mean, it, it's made up of organizations like ours, which are focused on banks that, uh, you know... The, well, we are very much focused on banks. We're only focused on banks, but also you know, the Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth groups of the world, which have you know mobilizing power and which can uh, um, direct that power towards banks. Um, but it also consists of, as you say, uh, people with a bank account, which is maybe not be organized, but which can be mobilized to change that. And I agree with you. It's very difficult to uh, convince people to change their bank account. On the other hand, it doesn't take... Um, that much, that many people to actually do it before banks get the signal that something is happening. So if you, uh, let's say, if you can organize that a few hundred people uh, will on any given day uh, change their bank account, which is a quite, it's a difficult thing to do. But uh, the impact of that message, if it's, if it's conveyed well to the bank, is substantial. They will see this as a, a signal that, uh, you know, amongst their retail clients, there is a genuine concern about whatever the issue was that made them change their bank account. Um, groups like us, we play, uh, and again, we are part of a bigger uh, network of organizations, but we play a role in uh, being a, a threat to the reputation of banks that claim to be, let's say, climate-proof or Paris-proof, or um, if, uh, if we expose them uh, for what they are. In, in many cases, banks that continue to finance the fossil fuel industry with billions and billions a year. And uh, if we manage to get that into the press and we know how to do that, then uh, that poses uh, a severe uh, threat to the reputation of banks. And that has um, different, many different impacts. On the one hand, um, as I said, uh, it, it is uh, retail clients that, that care about what banks finance and what not finance. So people may turn to another bank, but that, that's that's a small part of the story. But it's also analysts that uh, look at the work of us. Uh, as I said, we, we call them the bank track trackers. No, my organization is called bank track, but we have a lot of people that track us for the kind of signals we give of what's, uh, you know, what civil society thinks needs to happen with banks, uh, what sort of investments are risky from a uh, reputational uh, point of view, uh, what kind of uh, like especially when it comes to uh, very specific investments in concrete companies or projects, uh, analysts will, uh, when they appear on our website, we call these things dodgy deals. When they appear on our website as uh, you know a project that banks shouldn't touch, let's say you know Arctic oil drilling or you know uh, whatever uh, projects uh, based in a in rainforests or something, then um, yeah, that that that's that's noticed by analysts. And that's, again, analysts who advise investors, investors who may come to banks and ask questions in their engagement uh, with these banks. So um, we play a role in, in kind of exposing banks' uh, business activities, uh, finance uh, investment decisions, and um, communicate that to the wider public, to investors and everybody else that influences banks. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. I mean, you talk about getting the attention of, of banks, uh, senior management, I guess, and so forth. Um, uh, uh, certainly, historically, that there doesn't necessarily no correlation necessary between that and taking action. You could launch so, launch some some uh, uh, press campaigns, some media campaigns, some some all all that kind of thing. What's what's the best metric? Would you say to to look at uh, the impact of uh, of your action, what you're doing, civil society more generally? Presumably, it's deals that aren't done that um, that are, are banks that have committed. Uh, I've walked away from deals, some combination of that. I mean, clearly there, there are uh, 
things like the uh, the UN uh, initiative on responsible banking and so forth, and people can make commitments to that. But then again, commitments are words and so forth. So, uh, how do you deal with that? That question of really, when it boils down to it, what what is the the best metric? You mean the best metric to meet uh, to measure our success in campaigning and, and our impact on banks yeah, not just your organization no, but no, generally no. you know the, the 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 impact that the campaigning increased awareness attention yeah. is having on the behavior of banks yeah <clears throat> well a number of things um first um if you compare the situation with banks now to let's say 20 years ago and i think i'm in the position to do that then you see that uh, what was completely alien to banks namely uh, their role in you know uh, environmental uh, exacerbating environmental crisis or uh, you know uh, uh, protecting human rights etc 20 years ago these were all things that banks considered none of their business no they were busy uh, financing companies and projects and that's it uh, those days are over. I mean, any any serious large bank understands that they operate in a world where um, it matters a great deal what their financing is uh, doing in terms of environmental impact, uh, uh, violations of human rights, uh, workers' rights, etc. Um, that is already a gain, and maybe it's uh, you know we're kind of used to it now, so we don't see it as a gain anymore. But it is. It wasn't uh, that obvious that it would happen uh, 20 years ago. That's to begin with. Um, that's all very well. I mean, that translates into, for example, what you just mentioned, the, uh, the the UN principles for responsible banking that were launched in 2018, 2019 uh, for real, 2018 as a draft, uh, which is now 207 banks, I think, at the moment. Those are, you know, important in the sense that banks make a public commitment to in this case align their business with the paris climate goals or the sustainable development goals or uh, keep up with the un guiding principles uh, on business and human rights but it all comes down to what does that mean for the actual business every day so then uh, an important thing is what are they willing to finance and what are they not willing to finance anymore and a way for banks to determine that is to adopt to develop and adopt investment policies, uh, policies that uh, in any particular sector exclude certain companies because they think it's, well, too risky for themselves or too, uh, too impactful on the environment or human rights. Um, so we tend to measure uh, the commitments of banks on the, the emergence of such sector policies, uh, climate commitments, etc. But then, of course, uh, that has to translate in decisions on individual uh, client relations, individual investments. So we also spend a great deal looking at which banks are, despite their climate commitments, let's let's focus on that, um, continue to finance oil pipelines, uh, tar sands, Arctic oil drilling, that kind of things. Um, so it's not just, we don't just look at whether banks have the right policy, although that's a big part of our work. And we, we look at it, we assess it, we, uh, we give it, uh, you know, we categorize banks into uh, laggards or leaders and that kind of uh, based on their policies but we contrast this always with what they actually finance and when we see uh, banks involvement in uh, specific projects we try to stop it of course with uh, with help of our partners on the ground and internationally and then you come to that point that you just mentioned that uh, you know sometimes you can't measure your success because it is banks not uh, not entering a certain transaction or, or, or staying away from risky projects. So you'll never know that this was the impact of your work, but it is a very important part of our work that uh, you know certain things that don't find finance or certain banks that don't go to projects that you know we consider dodgy. Um, so it's on many levels. It's on uh, you know public commitments, uh, making these commitments work, translate them into sector policies, with very real exclusions of clients that that are you know no longer accessible in the world we live today, and looking at individual transactions, which banks are financing what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a, a myriad factors, as you say, but very interesting. You've got to weigh them all up, and I guess that's what having teams of people there weighing doing the, that research 
because I guess there's a limit to even even a committed uh, campaigner and or what they can you know find out and and uh, analyze and so forth. I mean, you mentioned the fossil fuel industry in particular. I mean, the most visible, egregious, and 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 uh, ugly face of of. Um, uh, corporate activity, I guess, but also in financing, uh, you know, financing fossil fuel and so forth. Can you give a little bit of an overview of, of that? We see quite a lot of momentum. And uh, uh, I mean, the, the coal industry, I guess, uh, in, in particular has, you know, but I, there are underlying dynamics there as well about the, you know, the, the future of the industry, but it, just a little bit of a sense of, of what banks are doing with respect to uh, curtailing at least their, their fossil fuel investments. Are, are mm-hmm. supporting of because they're not investments per se. There, I mean, when you're alone, I guess is the language thing. But yeah, yeah, there is a lot happening. Um, we live in exciting times, I would say. Um, just yesterday, I saw that uh, Shell, uh, Royal Dutch Shell, uh, uh, reported a uh, record loss of 21 billion uh, US dollars. Uh, that that's unheard of. I mean, that's of course result, you know, related to the uh, the pandemic and all that. But we see uh, Exxon, uh, you know, I'm not an energy expert, but it's clear that um, things are converging. There is the pandemic impact. There is, uh, you know, uh, countries by and large do get more serious about uh, you know excluding coal. Uh, you know, uh, you know, not wanting to see any new coal pa- power plants developed, etc. So. Um, that all helps, you know, the, the, the business case for financing fossil fuels in its own right is deteriorating. You know? So banks, of course, look at that and say, oh, is, there, is there money to make there? Um, but the pressure of uh, campaigners, of the general public, uh, but also of regulators uh, is pushing banks to, to, stre- to strengthen their uh, policies. And a lot of it is greenwash and a lot of it is efforts to, you know, let's say, give up on coal so that we can continue with oil and gas or that kind of strategies. So not genuine commitments to stop financing the fossil fuel industry. But uh, if you overlook the, uh, the field, which is a vast field, but um, there is interesting trends developing. Every year we publish a report together with uh, Rainforest Action Network, uh, Sierra Club and others, uh, you know, mapping uh, the situation of, uh, of the bank financing for the fossil fuel industry. The next edition comes out in March, uh, coming March. It's a massive job, um, uh, but it gives uh, a good uh, indication of where we are going. Um, we are in the middle of it. I, I, uh, I know that we're still, uh, the report covers both the actual financing by banks of the fossil fuel industry, coal, oil and gas, but it also assesses the, the policies and the commitments of banks. And the picture of this year, uh, that much I can uh, reveal. I, I, we're still in the middle, so I don't know the full details. But um, uh, the actual financing of fossil fuel industry over the last year since Paris, so since 2015, has not really gone down yet, although there is some signs that uh, 2020 investments are lower, but that whether that can be attributed to banks uh, committing to get out of fossil fuels or simply the pandemic, that's an open question. Um, so, but the key thing is, well, the money is not going where all the words go. So there, we may have a climate agreement, a Paris agreement. Governments may talk about, a lot about uh, bringing down CO2 emissions, but the money flow from banks to the fossil fuel industry is nowhere near going where we want it to go. It's still very large, 2.7 trillion uh, uh, over the last couple of years until uh, 2019. At the same time, and so that's on the on the on the actual finance front, and you're, you uh, you know with a bank like J.P. Morgan Chase leading for three years in a row uh, as as the world's uh, worst financier of the fossil fuel industry. At the same time, we see uh, policy commitments, policy feed uh, things, and and the most uh, visible, or especially in the last few months, is. Uh, many banks making uh, what we call a net zero by 2050 commitments, which is uh, a commitment to uh, bring down uh, financed emissions uh, to zero uh, in 30 years. Uh, there's a whole wave of that, uh, that JP Morgan Chase that I just mentioned did it, Morgan Stanley, HSBC, Barclays, Nordea, a large uh, Scandinavian but, bank. Uh, yesterday. Johan, it, what, what does that actually mean? It's, it's, it, the clue is in the title, in the word, it's net zero, because what does net uh, mean? And 2050, I mean, 
is it can you really take that as a significant sign of commitment no uh, not in itself i was going to say that um you, you, you're very right to point out this net because that's easily overlooked um, it's a commitment that by 2050 uh, looking at the paris climate agreement a bank uh, commits to bring its financed emissions, so the emissions resulting from the projects and activities that are financed by the bank, to net zero. And that means it's the result of, uh, you know, bringing down actual emissions, but also uh, investing in, uh, you know, uh, emissions uh, capturing technologies, carbon capture and storage, uh, you know, uh, sinks, uh, that sort of things. Um, and just that line, you know, uh, that's what a lot of banks are doing, but just saying, we're going to do that uh, between now and 2050. It's meaningless. Uh, I tend to say uh, uh, net zero by 2050 is the new world peace. Everybody loves it, but it's uh, it's meaningless. No, I mean, yeah. what we need is uh, commitments much earlier. Um, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, the, the scientific body behind uh, you know supporting the Paris Climate Agreement, has calculated that uh, you know we need to bring down global emissions by 7% every year to reach uh, a certain uh, reduction target in 2030 so you know what we need is commitments now from what you will do in the next year what kind of decisions you make to exclude coal exclude oil exclude gas uh, to set uh, intermediate targets for 2025 and for 2030 and without that, uh, you know, commitments of 2050, I'm 55, I will be 85 in 2050. You know, it's pretty uh, uninteresting. So we don't let them get away with it. It's, uh, you know, you'll see in our assessment that, you know, just saying that without doing everything else, without mentioning, we, we tend to say without mentioning the F word, the fossil fuel word in your commitments uh, is meaningless. Yeah, yeah. And and presumably, I mean, if the fossil fuel uh, sector is, at the, I mean, like at the cutting edge, I suppose, getting the most focus, most attention, uh, recognized, you know, to some, to an, I, I guess, an increasing extent as, as you know, uh, pathological to some extent, or, or, or very dangerous, at least. Other sectors presumably are are, are not so well uh, uh, impactful in, in our. Uh, it, it's they're following in the footsteps to some degree. So what what what's happening in the fossil fuel sector is is a, a good indicator of of the pace of, of of progress generally. Yeah, we. I mean, there is. It's impossible to imagine any solution for the climate crisis without bringing. Uh, the burning of coal, oil, and gas to an end. I mean, this is hardly a revolutionary thing to say these days, because yeah. it's you know the UN and the World Bank and the European Commission and everybody is saying this. No, so we're clear. That's the consensus. We have to stop burning fossil fuels. Um, banks tend, I mean, especially the banks that, in our eyes, don't have a genuine commitment to uh, to be part of the solution. They will place the oil and gas sector or the, the fossil fuel sector as one of the sectors they finance. So they, they like to talk about uh, mortgages and cement and aviation and shipping and whatever whatever else they finance and oil and gas. And then they say, well, you know, we don't have a particular uh, policy on uh, excluding the oil and gas industry, but look, we have uh, 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 special conditions in our mortgages or something like that. To which we say, you know, we are only convinced of your sincereness if you have a commitment to stop financing the fossil fuel industry next to everything else you need to do. We do look at all the other things as well uh, to a lesser extent because it's a big field, Yeah. but yeah. you don't get away with it uh, without uh, looking at fossil fuels. Very interesting. What about divestment? What's your view on, on divestment? And, and I have heard some say... Um, and you might somebody might say that well they would say that when they but that it concentrate the ownership and hands of investors who maybe are less responsive or careless you know so it's not a black and white thing I don't know how do you see the the general trend in investment and 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 can you give a bit of a picture there? Um, it's a bit beyond what we do. I mean, we look at banks not so much as at the investor self. Of course, we welcome uh, commitments by uh, by in, in, you know large investors, institutional investors, to divest from the fossil fuel industry. But um, uh, such divestments only really uh, make a difference if uh, the the asset from which uh, 
divestment is is from is closed down so that, that that's you know if, if you just sell it to someone else that indeed uh, yeah that doesn't sit that doesn't change anything so that means that investors have to you know take uh, you know be willing to take the loss of seeing the the, the asset being closed down uh, being decommissioned and all that and that's that's where we uh, um, see there's also a tendency uh, but I'm, I'm really stepping a bit outside of my expertise here, but um, investors, uh, you know, coming up with grandiose statements about divestment but of the fossil fuel industry, but then having a very limited understanding of what that industry is or, or where, the, where the boundaries are. Um, our friends uh, from Urgewald, a German NGO, uh, but together with us and others, they have developed uh, something called the Global Coal Exit List, and they are busy developing the global oil and gas exit list. And that is our understanding of uh, what the, in this case, the coal industry is. It's not just coal mines, it's not just coal power plants. It's also uh, the coal barges, the shipping, the transportation, the infrastructure around it. Um, that all needs to go. And uh, so divestment from that sector means divesting from all these companies also when they have, I mean, you, you see with many uh, many investors that they have a threshold like we will divest from companies with a certain percentage of their business uh, on coal and then that percentage is you know especially with the with the investors that do this more as a as an optical uh, action they choose that that percentage in such a way that the bulk of uh, companies will actually stay within their universe uh, yeah, yeah. So it all depends. Yeah. Uh, if we, we yeah. can imagine genuine uh, commitments to divest, but it comes with all kinds of uh, yeah. steps. It, it raises the question more generally, and you talk quite a bit. We talked. You mentioned the, the role of investors, um, and we hear there's all kinds of responsible investment groups, and there's all kinds of talk, and and and. Uh, yeah, it's kind of hard not to be too cynical when when you see you know BlackRock and so forth you know touting these ideas and yet supporting shareholder uh, are, are turning down shareholder um, you know initiatives with respect to climate change and so forth. But you, I guess, you see it through the lens of in, 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 uh, banking investors, the, the, the investors and their impact on banks. We talked a bit about civil society and uh, that kind of thing. What about what's the trend? What is the, the the kind of cutting edge, or what's interesting? Do you think in terms of how investors are changing their behaviour and influencing banks? Yeah, that's indeed uh, where we work more with investors. Although it's, um, I mean, it's bes- the the investors that are serious about their own investments in, let's say, the fossil fuel industry and 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 their their wish to divest. They also uh, increasingly are critical on uh, the banks they invest in and what the policies are of banks uh, towards the fossil fuel industry. So that pressure is there. Um, yeah, you touched upon the, this this whole discussion that always pops up uh, between engagement or divestment. Uh, uh, a lot of investors will maintain that uh, their uh, leverage is uh, only there when they engage. To which we will say that uh, you know. If, if you're not seriously willing to divest at the end of the day because you don't reach what you uh, seek with the engagement, then your engagement is not going to bring all that much because there's no there's no risk, there's no threat. No. Um, I I would say that investors in banks could step up their pressure. It's uh, I mean it's 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 generally understood now that that uh, banks that have a large exposure to the fossil fuel sector. Um, are in danger. I mean, it's not for nothing that uh, also central banks, uh, the regulators of the banking industry, um, are becoming increasingly concerned about banks having a too large exposure. Not, I mean, uh, you know, which may lead to a lot of stranded assets uh, when when things go wrong in the climate uh, situation. Can you just define um, what a stranded asset is? Just sorry for that. Yeah, a, a stranded asset is 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 an asset that has literally lost its value because of uh, changing circumstances. I mean, the most obvious example is you invest in a coal power plant with the idea that uh, this uh, plant will operate for 30, 40 years, and therefore uh, you get your return on your investment. But then uh, regulators step in and say that uh, they want to close all the coal power plants in five years. Um, Then you have a stranded asset because how are you going to recover that investment? Yeah. 
and and uh, the supervisors of the the banking industry, the the central banks, see this more and more as a as a risk to the financial system as a whole. I mean, it's a systemic risk if if uh, all at once uh, more and uh, you know a large number of banks are exposed to the same risk and try to to sell uh, invest. And and don't manage. No, this is the yeah, the, yeah. the nightmare scenario. So that pressure is also coming from uh, supervisors, but it's it's of course a very real risk for investors in banks as well. Yeah, I'm interested because when I first came across the idea, I thought, well, this is this is uh, you know very dramatic. It's you know we hear of efficient markets and all those kind of ideas which are bandied around, but really you know these assets, the potential that they are worthless. And large corporations are, you know, uh, have these assets on their on their balance sheets and so forth. It's it's quite shocking that in a way this goes on and so little has happened. What do you mean by what has not happened? Well, this is still uh, these these assets are still there. We're talking about them, but how how much has actually changed? Because presumably. You know, if these assets were genuinely became stranded in in a you know short period of time, or in some kind of you know uh, uh, dramatic action or, or or change, it would be calamitous. Exactly, um, that hasn't happened yet. But uh, let's say uh, last month, when Joe Biden became president of the United States, with his, with a stroke of a pen, he uh, cancelled uh, the Keystone uh, oil pipeline. Suddenly, that was a stranded asset. No, it's not going to happen. Uh, I'm looking at my screen here, and I see uh, the same demand or the same call on the, the Biden administration to uh, to step in on the you know the Line Three and the Dakota Access Pipeline and all the other pipelines that are being planned or constructed to uh, to transport oil from tar sands in Canada. Um, if that happens, then uh, certainly a whole uh, s- sector is is under seek and uh, will be seen as stranded assets. Banks and investors that have invested in it have uh, have a real problem, but that's still a managed uh, a kind of managed um, how you say that decline. Yeah, a managed decline, but but. You know, the real risk is, of course, a calamitous uh, situation in which, uh, let's say, this is something, uh, it's, you know, this is where we get into speculation, but it's um, the climate crisis or, you know, the climate chaos is accelerating. And, and you can, I, I, I find it almost hard to talk about this, but you can imagine, for example, that the climate situation gets so much out of hand so quickly, let's say the Gulf Stream suddenly stops or something like that that governments are uh, acting in the same way as they do now with the pandemic and suddenly make the decisions that everybody thinks are impossible. Like the European Union could decide that to, to close down all the coal power plants, you know, if there was a real emergency, you know, or just prohibit the construction of these things. Then, you know, such a signal from uh, regu- from governments and from uh, would send, of course, uh, uh, Real panic to the market, and then it's hard to understand what what will happen. No, what uh, what will this mean for the banks that have invested in the coal industry, or in you know, if there's suddenly there is a a stop on uh, you know all oil exploration on in 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 the in the European Union. I mean, I'm just inventing these things right now, but it's um, you don't really you can't really uh, you know develop models for these things. No, it's uh, and this is what. Uh, what could happen if if the climate crisis? Well, we all seem to think. Again, I say this with great hesitation, but we all seem to say, seem to think that uh, within you know a decade or two, the climate crisis could get so much out of hand that there is no space for a managed transition anymore. And what we will enter is a chaotic transition to a different world. Um, yes, and that's that's. The problem here is what has been called, you know, the, the tragedy of the horizons. No, that it's for banks to to make decisions now. These these kind of risks are beyond their uh, their risk horizon, so they tend to proceed with it, and then it may still happen, and then uh, yeah, then it turns out uh, in a very bad situation. Yes, no, it's um, clearly yeah, terrifying kind of prospects there um, and, and scenarios. Um, which, as, as you say, not 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 uh, 
happy uh, business dwelling on. Um, uh, not good for one's health. Um, the um, you, and we're talking about, uh, I guess, regulation. We're talking about commercial banks here. Can you set the scene a little bit? Because presumably. Uh, if a commercial bank in in, in uh, the Netherlands is under pressure on a particular project and it, it, it pulls out, there there could be any number of banks in Malaysia or who knows where in in, in Uzbekistan or or, or or anywhere really that take up the the the, the, the reins there and. Uh, uh, and, and, and many of the banks could also be uh, government-owned banks or some of this kind of semi-state finance, uh, you know, World Bank-related kinds of uh, organizations. Now, I'm covering a lot of territory there, I know. <laughs> um, but um, any general comments on, on uh, the state of affairs in the commercial banks with some kind of limited responsiveness we're talking about here to, to, to other kinds of finance institutions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't want to dismiss that risk altogether. I mean, it's it, it's it's the common argument that banks will tell us, especially the ones that think of themselves as you know very advanced and having the most sophisticated policies in place. They say, you know, it's it's if we don't do it, someone else will. That that's what it comes down to, and that someone else is then very often uh, a Chinese bank. Some you know we always say the Chinese bank argument. Um, it can't be dismissed altogether, but I would think. And it's very well possible that, let's say, if you are looking for, uh, you know, if a, if a company or, you know, is looking for finance and it can't find uh, like a smaller startup uh, or a, uh, let's say, a mining company with one operation in the Philippines, let's call it like that. Um, if they don't get finance from uh, a Dutch bank, they may turn to a Malaysian bank or a Chinese bank or something. But that's not really a sensible or feasible strategy uh, for uh, large oil majors. So they, 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 they don't want to become, Shell doesn't want to become dependent on an Uzbeki bank. You know? They want to work, do business with ING um, or, you know, other large banks. So it's not, um, but it all depends on how the entire world moves. We, what we can do without overseeing everything, we, are, we can't be asked to oversee the entire world and all the scenarios, is to put pressure on commercial banks and demand that they take up the responsibility. We also uh, engage, uh, pressure uh, initiatives of banks, such as the Equator Principles Association, which is 110 banks that have together agreed to, um, you know, to, to use certain criteria for what kind of projects they will finance and what kind of projects they will not finance. If these 107 banks, I think at the moment, collectively decide to no longer finance coal power plants, then basically I think it will be done then because that's all the major banks in the world. There may still be, as you say, the Uzbeki bank that wants to cough up money for a coal power plant, but that's not uh, a really an option for uh, RWE or Vattenfall or any other large. Uh, do you think there's some real momentum there? The, the, is it the equator uh, group of the 107 banks? Do you do you feel there's something really significant happening there? Um, no, not with the. I mean, this was exactly what we have uh, tried to incorporate in the latest version of the Equator Principles: uh, uh, stop financing coal power plants. You know, because uh, it's obvious that this is a, a major risk to uh, not just to to the world, but also to the banks themselves. They did not want that because there is, you know, we talk about 107 banks with very different interests. Some are in South Africa, some in Brazil, some in the U.S. and all that. Um, but uh, that story continues. Uh, you do see that a lot of individual banks within the Equator Group have adopted uh, no-go policies for coal, for coal power plants and coal mining. And um, then yeah. the trick is to to elevate this to the, the level playing field that all these banks will do it. Yeah. Um, we're working on it. It's not easy, but... Uh, yeah, no, no. And it brings up a, 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 a kind of a, a really essential question, which I should have asked earlier. And I, I think, is it, uh, I've forgotten the name of that, Willie Sutton, the, uh, the, the infamous American bank robber who was asked why he robbed banks. And he said, well, because that's where the money is. Um, and in a similar way, how profitable is the the fuel industry for banks? Or, uh, as I mean, not just as a percentage of the profits, but is it a more profitable? I mean, are the margins, do they make... Because very often you find in, in, in more risky projects that can be quite more profitable as well. Yeah, um, that's also true. Um, I, I find it very hard to say, to answer like whether it's more profitable or less profitable. The fact that, you know, uh, 
that that as I said, uh, 2.7 million trillion dollars went in from banks to the fossil fuel industry over yeah. the last five years. That shows that yes, there is good money to make. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, it's hard to say. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And but the, another thing I was just wondering about is that and you've seen a pervasive securitization, you know, money going to the markets over decades, really, um, you know, harder to track down, presumably, you know, an investment bank that's, you know, involved somehow in securitizing some of these assets, like putting them to the markets rather than going through a bank's balance sheet. Is that a possible way out? Could you see that more securitized forms of, of, of marketized forms of, of finance for, for these kinds of projects? Um, that could be. I mean, you talk about, you know, fossil fuel companies that by all means want to continue being fossil fuel companies and finding a way to finance themselves. Um, I think the, 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 what we need to achieve is that... Uh, and that is not a matter of pressuring the banks. That is a matter of, you know, uh, changing our societies at large is that um, to make those companies understand that there is no future in uh, being a fossil fuel industry alone, no? that they have to diversify, that they have to transition. And then that issue of how to finance themselves will not become, you know, they don't have to find all kinds of strategies to keep going as an oil company, but uh, uh, they will have access to regular uh, capital because uh, banks, and that's what we see increasingly, will demand a transition plan for these companies. Um, it's true what you say that uh, for us, it's very uh, um, difficult to to influence that kind of strategies of financing. It's, it's already difficult enough to, to, to look at banks and what they finance. But uh, it gets difficult that way. Yeah. Yes, the whole shadow banking. Also. <laughs> we are a twelve-person outfit here. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> I don't. I never underestimate our uh, ability to change and impact on banks. No, no, I know we can do that, but uh, not on your shoulders. I'm yeah. just wondering what the trends were that you. I mean, yeah. you observed there, um, because I guess um, you know it. it, it it's, there are myriad ways in which a financial institution's uh, yeah. loan portfolio can impact the environment and, and climate. And, and, and presumably, you know, some uh, sectors have a, a very different kind of environmental impacts than others. So uh, what, what can we learn from maybe a bank like Triadus or what, what, what are a few things that you think characterize best practice that you could point to and say, well, when, when, a, when a bank says they're doing these three things, we think they're 80% there or something like that. Mm. Um, I think we have to make a distinction between two kinds of banks that are the banks that uh, are, that were for a long time in their history, the banks that they are, you know, the, the, the HSBCs and Barclays and INGs of the world, you know, a very large uh, companies or, or, or institutions that finance many different sectors, including dirty sectors, coal, oil and gas, you know, Im impactful mining, uh, you know, a large hydro and all that. Those banks, we tend to judge on, you know, how serious they are about getting out of these sectors or, you know, like the, the, the strength of their sector policies. Um, but that's a whole different challenge from that other category of banks is the triados, the social ethical banks that were never there in the first place that have tried from the very beginning to be a different kind of organizations, a different kind of institutions, um, being very uh, strict on what they wish to finance, having a very positive like worldview and put their, uh, their resources at the service of, of reaching that world, that ideal world. So that, that's... In a way, it's easier, no? If you are a triados, you never were in the oil and gas industry, so um, it's easy to have a policy that uh, excludes that sector from uh, from your finance, and focus on uh, organic uh, agriculture. So we we absolutely need to strengthen that sector within the banking sector. But I mean, there is an analogy here. Analogy here with uh, let's say uh, fair trade coffee. Um, it's for what is it? 30 years, 40 years. When I was at university, we uh, we pushed for uh, fair trade coffee to be introduced at the university. Um, that's that's great. I mean, and that's what needs to happen. But after 30 years, it's like three, four, five percent of the market. Uh, whereas uh, you know, normal uh, coffee continues to be grown with all the you know the the, the pesticides and the, the workers' rights violations ongoing. And that's the same with the banking sector. We cannot wait for the three of those banks of the world to grow so that they are pushing aside JP Morgan Chase. We need to, those large banks have to transition 
and that's the bigger challenge for us. So it's it's quite quite, quite funny if you go to our website, you see that while we are all about sustainable banking, we actually pay very little attention to uh, social ethical banks. Not enough, really. We should, we are going to to improve improve that uh, in the coming year. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm very mindful of the, you know, uh, the work that you do with a small team. Uh, it's it's brilliant. It's really vital work. What about the, the regulators? And we talked to you, you a little bit, or you mentioned the central banks. What's the state of play there? Um, presumably, this is not coming from some kind of ethical concern or more of a risk concern. Um, uh, the balance sheets of the banks and so forth. Are there one or two central banks or regulators that you think are setting the pace? Absolutely. Um, that's that's maybe one of the most exciting things happening at the moment in this field. Uh, what is it? Three, four years ago, uh, the Dutch central bank, the Netherlands, I'm, I'm from the Netherlands, um, together with Banque de France and later on the Bank of England, they founded the Network for the Greening of the Financial System. It's not a very sexy name, but they are <laughs> central bankers after all. That's what they came up with, uh, the NGFS. Um, but it's been very influential. There's now over 60 uh, central banks uh, have joined this, including the Federal Reserve uh, uh, just uh, last month. Um so this is basically all the central banks that matter in the world together, um, looking at the, as I spoke about earlier, the, the systemic risk of, of a large exposure of, of banks to the fossil fuel industry, or, or you know, not just that, but uh, like uh, you know, banks not being aware enough of uh, climate risk, you know, for their portfolios. Um, it's one of the most uh, encouraging things to happen. And uh, I said to the Dutch Central Bank, uh, the person there, Frank Elderson, who is now uh, joining the, the board of the European Central Bank uh, soon. Uh, if you hear him talk, uh, you would think he works for us. No? He, 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 has, he says the right things. He says it without hesitation. He says, everything needs to change now. And we are, uh, so, so he has the right urgency. And um, and that um, so what the NGFS at the moment is doing is exploring how to to stay within their mandate of ensuring uh, financial stability, stability of the financial system, and and see how that needs to translate in, in additional uh, demands on banks. And and one of the things under discussion is that that uh, you know every bank needs to hold a deposit for uh, in in relation to the uh, amount of loans it has outstanding. No? That that's that's the the basis of, of financial stability of the banking sector. You could demand from banks with a large exposure to coal, oil, and gas that they uh, that they hold a larger deposit, um, and that is uh, that's a very strong um, uh, instrument in the hands of central banks. If they because it will it will force banks to uh, that that will want to avoid that to to step up their uh, risk management of of projects and, and companies that that are. Uh, risky from a climate perspective and and that helps to uh, it yeah. will probably have been an incentive for banks to to lower their uh, exposure and that that's of course the objective but it will also uh, be an incentive for banks to take a much better look at how are their clients actually going to deal with climate change yeah fascinating yeah. i don't know what the prospects for civil society influencing central banks but it's just seems oh, we're we're not that much involved but there is a whole network of civil society groups that do exactly that well, there is a, it's a very uh, very lively conversation between ngos and those central banks frank elderson is a very uh, approachable guy and uh, yeah there is a lot of uh, yeah fascinating i'm mindful of the time just one more big question maybe before just finally ask exploring what 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 where you're going next or what what you're exploring and researching um china uh, again mindful of your small team and so forth but um i did read recently that i mean china's obviously in so many ways such a huge massive player in 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 terms of industrial output in terms of uh, energy in terms of uh, fossil fuels in terms of the belt and road initiative which they've been financing uh, all kinds of fossil fuel projects around the world i saw uh, recently that there's been a dramatic fall off in the level of finance provided to, uh, uh, through uh, in investing in the various belt and, and, and road initiatives. That was called a belt and road. Um, uh, can you say one or two things about China? Yeah, sure. Um, um, where to start? I, I mentioned earlier uh, that the, the 
that banks that in, let's say Western banks tend to come up with the, the China bank argument when they say that if we don't finance it, a Chinese bank will do it. What I did not get to say then is that this argument is, is a false one. It's not, it, it's the general perception that, uh, you know, uh, Chinese banks will finance whatever, it's, you know, as long as it pays off, it's okay. And there was no, uh, there's no regulation, there's no, uh, uh, not no withholding, um, but it's changing as well. I mean, the, uh, uh, we worked until a couple of years ago, quite actively with Chinese NGOs as well. I mean, that has all changed because of the, the political situation in China, but I've been quite a few times to China to to uh, to train uh, Chinese uh, campaigners on how they can engage with their own banks, um, and there there was an interesting development there. It's um, um, yeah, it it is difficult. It's uh, and, and, and when you talk about China, everything ha happens at once there. I mean, on on the one hand, you see the investments, ongoing investments in coal. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it's it's the largest market for solar and wind and all that. So we can only hope that uh, these conflicting developments will, you know, go in the right direction. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But just we are engaging with Chinese banks. And for example, um, I can give you a concrete case. There was a there is a very controversial plant coal power plant in Kenya. It's called the Lamu coal power plant on the coast. Um, that was going to be financed by uh, ICBC, the, the Chinese bank and Standard Bank. And we did engage with the bank and the bank is not financing this project. So I mean to say that, especially when operating abroad outside of China, also Chinese banks are uh, to some extent sensible for uh, sensitive right. to, to right. reputational risk. They, they, have, they need to have a license to operate. But very interesting. Does somebody else finance it? Uh, no, so far it's on hold, oh, and, and right. we are in the very same discussion uh, with also ICBC uh, on the finance and a lot of other banks on the financing of what's called the East African crude oil pipeline, large oil pipeline that so far uh, ICBC has not gone ahead in financing because they, uh, together with Standard Bank of South Africa and others, they are faced with massive resistance in also in Uganda and Tanzania, but also internationally. So... Um, that's a great development. Yeah. Who, who finances your organization? Uh, it's always very difficult, but we get financed uh, by uh, private foundations. It's uh, in the uh, a Danish foundation, the KR Foundation, uh, the Telia Fund from the United States, um, uh, uh, the, the JMG Foundation, which is financing our forest work, uh, the European Climate Foundation. It's all on our website. We have, we're totally transparent on who's financing us. But it's not easy. It's no, uh, <laughs> thinking about how much, how, how vast this, the, the the scale of the you know the problems and and the the range of you know financial institutions the and the level of you know detail and research to to really understand and 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 then to take action and and make change and try and you know create waves of change and, and it's really great fascinating important work. What can individuals do? Well. Most individuals have a bank account, at least the people that listen to this podcast, I think. Um, and that means that, uh, you know, being critical to your bank on what happens uh, is important. That is, uh, and, uh, you know, I know it's it's not the, the first thing that people do, but to send a note to your bank, I mean, there is like our friends at the Fair Finance Guide, for example, they they have they run websites where, which cover a lot of uh, European countries and the banks that are uh, located there, including uh, tools to send messages to your bank, uh, asking them to stop financing fossil fuels. This, this kind of signals help. Um, but uh, that, that helps when you are banking with uh, like mainstream banks, you know, the HSBCs of the world. Um, of course, uh, it's even better if you move your money to the three of those banks of the world and, and the ethical banks that uh, that is that does make a difference, especially if you do it in a very visible manner so that you inform the the, uh, the HSBC of this world why you've, you put your money to the yeah. three of those banks of this world. Yeah, good, good. That's, that's and join, join the, the, the climate movement. You know, it, yeah. the time is, we cannot just be consumers. We have to be activists and we have to be concerned citizens that step up. That's, that's the more general yeah. uh, thing for everybody to do. Yeah. Yes. What's next? You, you mentioned you're coming to the conclusion of this big report, which 
which I am uh, looking forward to, to, to reading. Um, uh, what's next for you? Are there campaigns or uh, aspirations for, for the organization? We have a lot. Um, 2020 was supposed to be the breakthrough year for the climate movement. Uh, it didn't, uh, but now we are in 2021. The Glasgow Summit will happen uh, in one way or the other. Uh, it could well be an online event, but um, it is where we are focused on. And uh, we demand from banks, uh, our message to banks is even more urgent. Like we lost a year, um, but we want you to deliver in 2021. So the report that I mentioned with all the data, it's widely used. It's quoted by many newspapers and analysts and all that when it comes out. But it's the basis of engagement with the 60 banks that we cover in the reports. And it's it feeds into a whole range of things from shareholder actions to, you know, the upcoming AGMs of banks to Extinction Rebellion groups taking their figures and run with it and, you know, block bank outlets, etc. So we hope to play that role of um, providers of information, providers of knowledge, providers of contacts with banks uh, to how, how to engage. We, we talk to a lot of banks all the time. No, it's not. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so that we have a busy year ahead, but we have a busy year ahead every year. But it's uh, yeah, that, that's brilliant. And I think you, you, you uh, rankings and tables, bankers love those, don't they? Exactly. Yeah, this, they're amazingly sensitive to that kind of things. Almost like children, I say sometimes that that it matters a great deal. That this whole idea of peer pressure and uh, uh, you know comparing yourself to your peers is a very uh, I, I should have mentioned that in the beginning, but that that's a very uh, strong uh, way to influence banks. At, I dare say that uh, HABC cares a lot more of what, uh, how they are perceived in the eyes of Barclays than in the eyes of Greenpeace. So it's, um, yeah. yeah. Fascinating, fascinating. Well, I wish you the very best of success with this vital work and uh, you have a very busy agenda, I, I can tell, but uh, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your uh, work and insights and inspirations. Uh, well, thank you for the opportunity. It's been a good conversation, yeah. Is 2021 our last chance to save civilization as we know it? Leading climate activist Rupert Reid believes so. What's more, in his new book, Parents for a Future, How Loving Our Children Can Prevent Climate Collapse, he offers a plan for where we need to start. To buy the book or to learn more, you can visit www.parentsforafuture.org. And I'll be interviewing Rupert about his book, in an upcoming episode of the Sustainability Agenda. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.